0: Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Jordan Peterson has this definition of thinking. He says that thinking is an argument you have with yourself, where you present both sides of view. You talk, you listen, and you represent both sides fairly. If you cannot do that, then you're unable to think. He then goes on to state that based on this definition, a huge portion of our population is unable to think because they were never taught how. Upon hearing this definition, I immediately recognize that this is one of the skills that's absolutely essential to becoming the best version of yourself as a doctor. So let's talk about what it takes to think properly. When I first started chiropractic school, I lived with my grandma. She was about 85 years old at the time. One day, I caught her arguing with herself in the kitchen, and she was doing it rather loudly. She had begun to lose her hearing, as people do, so she had no idea I was even home. I was trying to keep it that way, but she also had a sixth sense and somehow became aware of my presence. I think she sort of felt me back there. (laughs) She sort of chuckled a bit, knowing she had just been caught arguing out loud with herself. She then said, You know it's only the sane people who argue with themselves. If you never argue with yourself, you'll eventually go insane. No doubt, on many occasions, I've heard her daughter, my mother, argue with herself, usually preferring to call herself by name, including her middle name. I've actually never heard anyone call my mom Barbara Jean except for her. That's kind of funny to realize just now. You might now think that I come from a family of crazy people. But this habit of arguing with themselves, I would argue, is most certainly what has made my mother and her mother such level-headed thinkers. If you're now wondering how often I argue with myself, I can tell you I do it daily, although I prefer to do it silently with myself. I first encountered this habit when I first began in practice, although I now wish I would have started much earlier in life. I had this experience, and perhaps you've experienced this as well, where I had examined the patient and I was looking at their x-rays, and I had absolutely no idea what I should do. I had to decide to do something. So I would make a case for why I should take a particular course of action and what I should adjust. I would then argue against myself for why that might be the wrong thing to do and what would happen if I did the wrong thing. Then I would go back and either restate my original argument with some minor modifications or I would scrap the original argument and present an entirely new one. I didn't know it at the time, but I was engaged in actual thinking by Jordan Peterson's definition. And since it was new to me, I wasn't very good at it. But every time I would do it, which was multiple times a day, I was practicing my skills and I was improving. It was so simple, but I even, didn't even understand how that would help to shape my thinking process for the future going forward. I also can't tell you how often I encounter people who present their ideas or their point of view. And it's immediately obvious to me that they never argued a contradictory point of view with themselves. They hadn't really thought about it. And they had jumped to the conclusion that felt good to them at the time. So it was an emotional appeal and not an intellectual one. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but if you want to make consistently good decisions and to be known as a thoughtful person or a good thinker, then you need to have the argument with yourself before you have it with anyone else. I don't want you to think that I'm merely insulting people by saying that they aren't thinking. There's actually something more profound hidden beneath the surface of this apparent insult. First, you have to ask yourself the question, what makes humans unique among the animals? One answer, Is that humans have the ability to suppress their instincts and act with intentional thought every animal on earth acts out of instinct have you ever heard the story of the scorpion and the frog a frog meets a scorpion by the bank of the river the scorpion wants to get across but doesn't know how to swim he asks the frog to give him a ride over but the frog declines you'll sting me and we will both drown no i won't do that says the scorpion why would i want to kill myself reluctantly the frog decides to oblige him and the scorpion climbs on his back. Halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog. Why would you do that, the frog asks. Now we're both gonna die. Because it's my nature, says the scorpion. I tell you this story because it perfectly highlights the inherent danger of a creature that acts on instinct alone. Humans are no less dangerous when they allow themselves to be guided by instincts alone. When a person chooses to suppress their instincts and choose their actions carefully, it's then that they are acting like a human. Ancient Jewish tradition would tell you that people are human and not animals and there's a difference. When people allow themselves to be guided only by their instincts then they're choosing to act as a wild animal and not as a human. The human animal acting only on instinct is the most treacherous and dangerous of all the animals. This ability to think as we have previously discussed is the only thing that separates the humans from the animals. If you think about the worst decisions you've ever made in your life I have no doubt that you will soon realize that in that moment you made a decision based on urge and desire, or we could call it instinct. In hindsight, with a little bit of thinking, you can quickly realize that you would have been better served to make a different decision. The reason hindsight is always 20-20 is because in hindsight we think, and in the moment we often act on instinct. This is why thinking is so important. It would have been enough of a blessing for me just to have this realization. But then came another one. Many years ago, I was in a band, and the guitar player and I decided to record an album of original music. We both had jobs, so we would work all day and then meet from about 8 in the evening until sometime after midnight to write and record our songs. One day, he had written a song, and he suggested how he thought the singing should go. I wasn't really sure what he meant, and I wasn't sure if I would sound right, even if I did do what he said. My initial reaction, my instinct, was to ignore him and do it my own way. But then I thought, no. Let's pursue this and see where it leads. Either it will prove itself to be a bad idea, and I won't have to be the bad guy for saying so, or I will discover something new that right now is outside the boundaries of my imagination. So he gave me his ideas, and I tried it. I then gave some ideas, and we tried them too. This gave him some new ideas, so we tried yet again. The final product was the best of our ideas and something that neither of us could have come to on our own. That was when I had the epiphany. Collaboration, in this manner, is the exact same skill as thinking. The difference being that with collaboration I'm no longer limited to only choosing the best of my ideas, but I can incorporate ideas that are currently beyond my imagination. The next epiphany was that when people are unable to work in teams and collaborate, it's because they are poor thinkers, since both activities involve the exact same process. If you can't have a productive argument with yourself, then how can you possibly have a productive argument with someone else? If Jordan Peterson is right that so few people are capable of thinking, then it's no wonder that most people make terrible teammates and are incapable of collaboration. Is this at least part of the reason why the national divorce rate is so high? I would imagine so. Which means if you want to get married, and actually stay married, it would be a good idea to work on your ability to argue with yourself. It would also be a good idea to marry someone who knows how to argue with themselves. People who know how to argue with themselves are far more likely to, quote, fight fair, as they say, because they understand intellectual honesty. So how does all this translate into becoming a better doctor? Well, the more I think about it, the more I realize it's the very essence of being a doctor. I don't want to limit it there. It might very well be the essence of every job, but I don't know, because I don't do those jobs. What I do know is that developing this skill has a spillover effect to every area of life, and that has convinced me it's probably more valuable in every area of life than we even realize. As I previously mentioned, this skill is essential when evaluating an x-ray. In my experience, jumping to quick conclusions on x-ray is a recipe for making mistakes and making the same mistakes often. Personally, when I look at an x-ray, I form an initial impression. I then ask myself one very important question. What am I missing? It's only four words, but if you'll give it time and attention, these four words can elevate you to a whole new level. I'm currently working in two different offices, and in one of those offices I have students who follow and observe me. For that reason, I've been putting more thought into this process, and I've been working to figure out how best to verbalize the thinking process. All that to say that the more I think about the process of evaluating x-rays, the more I realize that our instinct, remember that word, is to simplify the process even to the point of oversimplifying it. Over the last two weeks, I've been showing them why you can't just adjust the most posterior segment, which is an oversimplification that many people commit. As we begin to recomplicate it, we ask the question, why is that segment posterior? That's how we discover where the problem is really coming from. But x-ray is only one application of this process. One argument that I continually have with myself is which table I'm going to use. If you have a patient with a T2 problem, are you going to just adjust it seated? or on the knee chest, or on the high-low, or on the slot table. Depending on the patient, any one of those might be appropriate. So how do you decide? Of course we have guidelines that help us to make a decision. The bigger problem occurs when you begin adjusting and you start to make a change, and then you can't adjust it where you always have before. Now you have to make a determination of where you're gonna move them next. That process is gonna require another argument with yourself. It might not be a very long argument, but resist the urge to move the patient based on instinct or what might feel comfortable and make the conscious effort to engage in the argument. I promise it will make a difference and it will make you a better doctor. Too many doctors, and I don't just mean chiropractors, but dentists and medical doctors as well, get through their day by functioning on instinct alone. However, the very best doctors in every discipline are thinkers who engage the argument. As God said, doctors, we're uniquely equipped to engage in the argument with ourselves and the difference between those who do and those who don't is quite profound. Another argument that we have with ourselves is which segments and how many to adjust. The unique challenge here is that we get bogged down in sympathetic versus parasympathetic, biomechanics versus neurology, and subluxation versus compensation. It's enough to give you mental paralysis so you can't even think at all. When that happens, we tend to default right back to instincts. I don't know how much this will help, but when that happens to me, and yes, it does still happen and I suspect it always will, I go back to the symptoms to look for a common denominator and I ask myself, what is the body trying to tell me? Again, I don't know how much that helps, but for me, it helps to simplify and get me refocused. The point of all this is that we have to make a conscious effort to think by actively engaging in an argument with ourselves. Maybe you've done this for a while and you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For us, the act of thinking in this manner takes a lot of energy, but at the end of a long day or a long week, it's easy to get fatigued, and it takes a lot of intention and commitment to continue to think on every patient and not just default back to instincts. Maybe this concept's new to you and you've never thought about it before. Don't expect to be perfect at it, but simply make a committed choice that you're going to have the argument and act on thought and not just instincts. I don't necessarily want to make instinct sound like a four-letter word, So here's a little secret about instincts. The more you think about it and engage in the argument, and the more you put your hands in motion to create the action of chiropractic, I found I prefer the word action over practice, the more your instincts will improve as you refine them to become more reliable. When I do find that my instincts are telling me something, I don't just act on them, but I ask myself, why? In this way, my refined instincts guide me back into the thinking process instead of taking me away from them. This is how you can evaluate your instincts to see if they are serving you or distracting you. Do your instincts guide you back into the thinking process or do they serve as an escape to avoid the thinking process? If you engage in this internal conversation, you'll find there's a constant battle between what the mind wants to do and what the body chooses to do. This is not a new problem. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul states that the good I want to do, I don't do, but the evil I don't want to do, I keep doing. Obviously, this is not a new problem. We may never master it perfectly, but our awareness of the problem will be the spark that keeps us moving in a direction contrary to the downhill stream of doing what's easy or expedient. When I first started in practice, I was a confused young man. I felt like I had been thrust into a profession where the status quo for both chiropractic and healthcare in general was both unethical and even immoral. I felt that I had no choice but to invent my own brand, if you will, of chiropractic to remain true to chiropractic principles while still being ethical and moral. The choice to practice the Gonstead system was a huge part of that, as it was the only method I knew that would put my conscience at ease. Still, there were individuals within the community that practiced in ways that would deeply bother my conscience. In those situations, I would ask myself, why? This question and the thinking that would follow was what led me to not only make decisions about how I would practice, but ultimately led me to convictions about how it should be practiced. I know many older Gonstead doctors, and they all have convictions as well, mostly the same convictions. I'm sure they got there by the exact same process. Today I've kind of led you from the philosophical or theoretical to the practical, and ultimately to what you might call the spiritual, the soul of who you are. I love the C.S. Lewis quote that, quote, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Refining the unseen person of who you really are is one of the most worthwhile endeavors that any human can engage in. It will, not coincidentally, make you a better doctor as well. Of course it will, because better humans make better doctors. I hope you found this beneficial, and it will help you improve the way you practice this week. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. All mm-hmm. right.